When I think about B2B marketing strategy, I'm reminded of my time working in the cycling industry. So before I became a B2B marketing director, I held a stint as the head of communications for a brand that essentially manufactured cleaning and maintenance products for people who rode on bicycles, which doesn't sound that interesting, but it was actually really cool because we got to work with a bunch of professional athletes from the world of professional cycling, one of which was called Team Sky. Now, Team Sky were a fascinating case study because they were the first team after many, many years uh, of British people riding in the Tour de France to actually put a British person into the yellow jersey, which for those of you who don't know is essentially the jersey you want to be wearing when you finish the Tour de France. It means that you've won. And the way that they were able to achieve this in part was down to a theory that was developed by their general manager, a guy called Sir Dave Brailsford. And this theory was the theory of marginal gains. In essence, the theory of marginal gains is if we increase the performance of everything that goes into a professional cycling team by 1%, the cumulative impact of those improvements will amount to substantial growth, substantial benefit. This theory can be easily applied to, to marketing, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a principle that I follow when, it, when I'm developing a marketing strategy on behalf of a client. Because often it's better to focus on improving everything that you've got by 1% than it is to try and make a dozen or so big risky bets in one go. When it comes to cycling, how can we improve the wattage of our chains by 1%? Well, we invest in a better lubricant. When it comes to marketing, how do we ensure that the content that we're producing gets more visibility? Well, we can take what we're publishing in LinkedIn and we can repurpose it and we can put it into online Slack communities, right? It's a relatively low lift activity, but when it's coupled with 99 other micro changes of that nature, over time that amounts to significant growth for a professional cycling team or a B2B organization. Today, I'm really excited to talk to Lucy Heskins, who's the founder of a consultancy called Oblimey. Lucy and I met last year at Sastock in Dublin. We had a great time at the event. She's super knowledgeable, super switched on on how to take an early stage business from zero to one when it comes to marketing and product strategy. So we cover everything from what an MVP strategy looks like, uh, whether you should be hiring someone from Fang as your first marketing hire, um, what are the signals uh, that a marketer needs to look for when it comes to choosing their new role in an early stage company? We covered a lot of ground uh, on startup marketing, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you. If you've got any questions about B2B marketing or kind of startup marketing, you can reach out to Lucy, search for her on LinkedIn, Oblime is the name of her company, or of course you can reach out to me as well, jason at b2bbetter.com is my email address. But for now, glad to have you here for the ride. To be able to answer this, you've got to kind of take a step back and understand actually what stage that startup is. So I just asked Lucy the question, what goes into building an MVP marketing strategy? And this is a question that I think a lot of founders ask themselves and a lot of founders really, really struggle to answer. It's natural to just default to promotion activities. Our marketing strategy is social media. Our marketing strategy is developing a blog. That's not a strategy. That's a tactic. 
to build a coherent strategy, you have to take a step back. Here's Lucy again. And a framework that I use, and I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of it, is kind of the stages or the four stages that a startup goes through, according to Steve Blank. And when it comes to looking at the components of building this marketing strategy for your MVP, um, in my opinion, you are in that very first stage. So you are in customer discovery. So typically the activities that I would expect to see, they're not marketing, they're customer development that kind of set those foundations for the marketing strategy. Now, you and I both know that what I'm about to describe in its core is marketing, but uh, <laughs> some people decide to kind of use different terminology. So the two kind of main things that um, I think that you need to focus on, and I've got experience working with founders, are the problem hypothesis and the product hypothesis. So when you're going through this, you're not trying to validate the product. You're trying to validate a business model. And that's nothing new there, but you're trying to work out, are you solving a problem that someone is willing to pay? And can you turn this into a sustainable business model? And too many founders that I work with, and do you know what? I've done it myself. We fall in love with the product and not the problem. That day when somebody doesn't quite like what you've done or picks up, it can really kind of knock your confidence. And that's why this MVP stage is really, really important. Let's be clear here. This isn't just a startup problem. It may be more visible within the startup environment, but there are plenty of really big organizations out there that you think would know better who are investing a ton of time, energy, and budget building a solution that they haven't actually gone and done the customer research to identify there is a problem for. The advice that Lucy's about to share isn't just for startups. Any organization, any size, any stage can definitely derive value from it. So in terms of how I would kind of approach this then is, first of all, let's look at the problem type. So typically you would create a problem statement. You would talk about the context. You would say where you think the gap is and what your solution is potentially coming in to kind of solve here. Now, this stage requires you to understand the kind of market that you might be entering. Um, are you defining a new category? Notice the tone of my voice when I say that. Are you resegmenting an existing um, market? Understand the conditions first, right? What you're trying to do is understand if there is a market for someone that is experiencing the pain that you think that you're kind of solving here. They have a high level of urgency, so they want to actually solve it. Um, they've got low ability. Um, and they have cobbled together or they have some kind of working solution where they're trying to fix the problem themselves. So that, that will give you kind of the first indication. The kind of second part of it is looking at the broader market and the customer profile that you would go after. So in terms of kind of your marketing strategy, yes, you would look at things like targeting and you would use things like buyer personas. Um, again, notice the tone in my voice there, but I think what, a lot of people kind of forget here is to understand the why. And this is where you can use something like Jobs To Be Done. For those of you who don't know, Jobs To Be Done is a framework that focuses on understanding the underlying motivations of a customer when they quote unquote hire a product or service 
to fulfill a specific job or task in their lives. It really emphasizes the need that a customer is looking for a solution to accomplish a particular job or solve a problem they face rather than simply purchasing something based on its features. A classic example and the one that's often used to illustrate jobs to be done in action is that of a milkshake. You know, there was a study done when jobs to be done was being developed where uh, the researchers were interviewing people that were picking up milkshakes first thing in the morning from a local drive through And in essence, and I'm butchering the story here, Lucy does a far better job at explaining it actually, and we recorded that offline. But, you know, in essence, these people were hiring a milkshake to help them solve a particular challenge, which was feeling full on their way to work during a long drive without having something that's going to get all over the place, like an Egg McMuffin as they're driving 70 miles down the road, something that was cheap, something that didn't make them feel like too full because, hey, we're going to work. We don't want to feel like we're going to blow up at our first meeting. So Jobs to Be Done is all about helping businesses shift their focus from being product-centric to being customer-centric. There is an opinion that you can only use Jobs to Be Done when you've got an established customer base, but that's something I disagree with because what you're trying to do is find a customer group and you're trying to understand what they're switching from and to there's still there's still kind of that pull there when you kind of run customer interviews using jobs to be done all of a sudden you learn what the progress someone is trying to make but also you're understanding what the switch is the context that someone is using and potentially the workflow that your tool would disrupt or complement so that's definitely kind of some of the things i would touch on there and then from a product hypothesis what we're trying to do is wait till the absolute latest possible moment to start building. So there are a number of MVP um, formats available, concierge, Wizard of Oz, uh, email marketing list, whatever it is. And the right one that makes sense for the problem that you're solving and the audience you think that you're going to go after will be determined by kind of the level of fidelity but also the coverage of customers. There's a couple of things there. So from a marketing perspective then, what you're trying to do is understand the marketing materials that are needed to support a founder. So it's the founder-led selling. So in my experience, it's things like a very, very basic website. And when I say website, I mean kind of landing page here. Um, some kind of email or demand capture because we're starting to kind of audience build here as well um, and ultimately kind of the tools that someone needs to be able to articulate the problem but tell the story as well um, so yes there might be a kind of a bit of branding here as well but at the moment we're really really a early stage we're not committing money to channels we're not doing anything like that we're just trying to work out whether would somebody pay for this what does a validated um hypothesis look like then so from my perspective um it's commitment so you've learned this stuff about your potential customer base what are they committed are they committed to a paid pilot for example have they committed to helping you with user interviews it's it, the commitment is the important part there there's also a stat that um some people shared that if 40 to 60% of your respondents after you've interviewed them say, yes, I want to buy this product or tell me more, that's also another indication. You can also look at things um, such as sign-up rates, depending on what kind of MVP you're using as well. So there's a, there's a few bits, few bits there. 
if you are a brand and you are thinking about launching your own podcast or show, but you aren't sure where to start, you can book 60 minutes with me to brainstorm some ideas and get practical advice on how to create a piece of media IP that your customers totally care about. It's absolutely free. All you got to do is visit b2b-better.com forward slash podcast dash assessment. That one's a bit wordy. I'm going to drop the link in the description of this episode. But again, b2b-better.com forward slash podcast dash assessment. We'll talk about what you need to develop, launch, and run a branded B2B podcast that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. We'll talk about what success looks like for your company in owning a podcast. We'll run through what resources you need to get started and what's possible right now. We'll develop an eight-week roadmap that will get a show live in all podcast directories and also share some actionable tips on how to position your podcast to deliver tangible ROI. So again, if you want to take that free 60-minute podcast assessment, visit b2b-better.com forward slash podcast dash assessment. So what Lucy just shared there was just jam-packed with useful, actionable advice on how to build an MVP strategy. And I just want to take a second to summarize it. I took away three main points. The first thing you need to do is you need to establish your problem type. And the way that Lucy recommended you do that is in the creation of a problem statement. So you need to understand if there is a market out there that is not only feeling the pain that you aim to solve, but they're demonstrating a willingness to pay for a solution, Uh, perhaps one that will supersede a solution that they've created themselves. The second thing you want to do is you want to look at the broader market and understand the why. And you can do this by using the jobs to be done framework that Lucy shared. And the final thing you want to do is you want to create your product hypothesis. And really what Lucy was emphasizing here was waiting until the absolutely last minute before committing any resources or budget or energy into building, right? You want to be able to have confidence that any money that you do invest in building something is grounded in a foundation of certainty, a certainty of a commitment from the user that there is a willingness to pay for a solution. So, We know now the foundations, the building blocks of building out an MVP strategy. Next, I wanted to ask Lucy, how do you go about winning your first users, the first customers to your platform? Here's what she had to say. Um, So I think the framework that I would use um, is largely go to market. So somebody asked me the other day, what's the difference between a marketing strategy for an early stage startup and go to market and to me they're interchangeable they're the exact same thing right so there are a kind of a number of core elements that i would recommend focusing on but i think that from a marketer's perspective you need to focus on both acquisition and activation because you haven't got product market fit right you haven't got it yet and so i think having kind of this view of getting people in and keeping them in that needs to be your focus so where would you start? First of all, forget everything you've ever done at previous businesses, because 
yes, you might have sold or marketed to a sales audience. Yes, you might have worked in SaaS, but the problem you're solving has changed. The way that customers derive value from products change because we live in this big, bad world. So you need to make sure that you're aware of kind of like the, the customer mindset from this perspective. Now, the go-to market motion you are likely to follow is a sales-led one. Um, and the reason why I'm saying this and not product-led is product-led go-to market motions typically work best if you've got product market fit. A lot of the work that you're going to be doing is unfortunately going to be involved, uh, what's going to involve unscalable campaigns as well. So you're literally getting your hands dirty. I just want to take a moment here to highlight what Lucy says. Product-led growth is 99 times out of 100 not going to be the right strategy for an early stage startup, particularly one that hasn't yet reached product market fit. I saw an interesting stat the other day, 91% of B2B companies plan to increase their PLG investment over the next 12 months. And of that 91%, just under 50% plan to double their investment. This really highlights to me the enthusiasm that product-led growth commands, but it's not a silver bullet. You know, Lucy said it herself. You need to focus on acquisition and activation. Acquisition is about how does a person, how does a potential customer become aware of your brand? They know they need to visit the website, they can sign up with your product and ultimately become a paid customer. Activation is all about having them interact with your product, engage with it more meaningfully. You can't have activation without acquisition and product-led growth inherently until you start getting that flywheel spinning isn't going to give you the acquisition piece that you need in the early days. As a great example, think about Loom. It's the quintessential product-led growth company. You record a video on the platform, you send it to a colleague, they have to view it on the platform, they then sign up to send you a video back, right? It's got that viral flywheel. But it didn't start like that. Loom got its first 10,000 customers off the back of its product hunt launch uh, way back in 2016. So there was already an acquisition channel in play that wasn't fitting into that product-led growth bucket. So when we're thinking about PLG, and if you are thinking about PLG as a go-to-market strategy for your organization, just remember that, as Lucy says, in the early days, it's very likely not going to be the right fit. You need to get your hands dirty, do some grunt work, and often adopt a founder-led sales motion. Here's Lucy again. So first of all, start with your market. Who is in the kind of space that you are looking to enter? This is potential customers, it's competitors, it's influencers, it's, it's kind of that broad group. And then next, you need to kind of look at who's the customer, who's likely to buy. And this is where jobs to be done comes in. And I know I got go on a lot about jobs to be done, but what's interesting is that as soon as you start talking about customers and unlock the why, you learn what their struggling moment was. So what they are, what progress they're looking to make. And that's important from a marketing perspective because you know the language to use on your um, website. You know, I don't know, what you're going to be putting in your onboarding as well you've got an idea of what they're looking to achieve or what that value realization stage looks for them. Also, when you're conducting these interviews, you're going to learn what they use to educate, uh, educate themselves and buy 
you're going to learn the channels that make sense to them and all of a sudden it just opens up these kind of broader questions about which channels you should be looking at now if you read traction or whatever book out there there are 19 20 30 different channels available at this concept when you're looking for your first thousand users for example you're only going to need to be looking at maybe four or five channels max so these interviews kind of open that up if you work in a b2b SaaS perspective all of a sudden you understand the workflow that your product potentially is kind of coming in, complementing. Bob Mester and Greg Engel in Demand Side Sales say, when you think about your product, think about it this way. Your product is not the burger, it's the mustard, right? It plays, just makes it one small part of a customer's total solution. So you've got to understand the ecosystem that you're kind of entering. That's useful because all of a sudden, you realize the complementary brands that your customers are using. So maybe that opens up, I don't know, co-marketing opportunities. And then competitors. We all know that there are three types of competitors, direct, indirect, and replacement. And what's interesting here is that if you want to speed up your kind of sales process, all of a sudden you can work out actually which kind of competitive market you should be going after how you should position your product, how you should brand the products as well. That's kind of the, the first part of this. The second part is reach. So this is where we're talking about channels. So as I mentioned, there are a number of channels and you are likely to be engaged in unscalable marketing here because you don't know what that loop looks like at the moment. A couple of shortcuts might be look at the competitors that you're going after. Is there any quick wins? Are there any channels that you should be in? But also think about when it comes to selecting channels, think about the sentiment. So we know that the way that we market our businesses, in terms of channel selection, we need to choose the ones that people use to learn and research and buy our products. That's not a quote from me. That's from Brian Halligan from, from HubSpot there. But it's it, it's it's interesting because all of a sudden it gives you a uh, gives you an indication of whether actually SEO is the play, whether content marketing is the play, or whether for something like performance marketing as well. It helps to reduce that uncertainty. And then kind of the last part that I recommend that you look at is this customer acquisition hook. So things like freemium trial usage base not pricing models we all know that but the one that you choose is a strategic decision because it can be influenced by the way that someone kind of signs up and what they expect from your product but it also can be determined by things like the size of your market you've got really niche product or service you're not gonna you're not gonna explore freemium <laughs> do you know what i mean so that's definitely a consideration and then lastly kind of where i think this kind of i don't know it ties on really nicely is onboarding so onboarding does not start on that first sign up email it starts based on the messaging that you put out at your campaign level okay so think about what you can be doing with your product to help drive adoption to help drive your users to come in realize value for them to kind of get closer to that aha moment that that people talk about those are just a couple of things that i would suggest you kind of explore in how you get those, well, how you get closer to that first kind of thousand users. Yeah. 
So over the last 20 minutes or so, we've talked about what an MVP marketing strategy looks like. And we've also shared a framework on how to acquire the first users to your product. Now, a question that I'm often asked as a marketing consultant is, Jason, when do I hire? And specifically, who should I hire? Should I be looking at bringing on an in-house marketing executive? Should I be outsourcing to a consultant? Do I need an agency? Who's actually going to help me execute this strategy? I've certainly got some opinions on it. I know Lucy definitely has some opinions on it. Here's what she had to say. Outsource as straight as, uh, as soon as possible. That's the opinion I also share. And I just want to caveat it that it's not lost on me the irony of two marketing consultants saying that you should be outsourcing your marketing strategy, right? But there is a good reason for it. And I think the reason for that is it's risk mitigation. It's about making a strategic investment in an individual or a team of individuals that will be able to get you to where you want to be quicker. Lucy expands on that thought a little bit more. By you outsourcing to a consultant or an agency, they've made the mistakes. They are experts in their areas of specialism. So you're not having to wait for somebody to kind of gear up and learn um, and test and iterate. You're kind of you've almost got a shortcut there. I think also when you are working with an agency or consultant, so you're outsourcing this, the delivery rules are a lot clearer. I think once you are comfortable that you can bring a marketer in and you as the founder are aware of what good looks like, I think that's when you can start to make that adjustment. But I was the first employer startup, right? I came in to run the kind of product marketing aspects of what we were doing. And it's interesting because I, I definitely made a lot of mistakes and I was very quick to realize that just because I've done email marketing and just because I've marketed a product to HR, for example, does not mean that I would get the same results in this in this startup as well. So I think when you do outsource, know that they are experts in their particular field, but also find out to what extent have they worked in a startup environment. And when I say startup environment, I mean marketing to a brand new audience. So that brings us to the end of this interview on startup marketing and building out a startup marketing strategy. I really want to thank Lucy for jumping on and sharing her wisdom with me. You can learn more about her and, and her consultancy uh, on her website, which is oblimey.com. It's just jam-packed with downloadable playbooks and resources for founders and first hire marketers on how to go from zero to one. It's also got a fantastic comic book the adventures of startup marketing club perks include burnout and tears really funny i've got a print version here at home i picked up at sastock in dublin last year i'd highly recommend i just want to cap off this interview by saying that when it comes to marketing strategy there is no one size fits all um, it's easy to get lost on linkedin or twitter or insert social media platform of choice here um, with a barrage of different hacks and playbooks and 10-step listicles on do this and you'll be able to take over the world none of it's true now of course there is value to glean from that type of content but in my 10 plus years experience running b2b marketing functions and building up strategies from scratch i can tell you that the unique circumstances of your organization and of your function uh, of the marketing function itself 
are going to largely dictate what success looks like and how you can go about getting there. So the best thing that you can do if you're sitting here at the end of this episode thinking, I know I've got a strategy problem, but I just don't know how to solve it. Pick up the phone, speak to a consultant like Lucy, like myself, or any other consultant, B2B marketing consultant, who can take a look under the hood of your operation and diagnose the challenges and give you tailored, actionable advice. So thanks again to Lucy. Thanks again to you for listening. I will see you next week. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please, please, please jump into your podcast directory of choice and just leave a positive review or rating. They mean so much to me. They really help a part-time creator like myself just get more listeners and provide more value to marketers across the globe. Um, If you want to learn more about my services here at B2B Better, uh, you can visit my website, www.b2b-better.com. We do marketing consultancy. We run uh, podcast sprints where we help companies develop and build and produce and distribute their own branded shows with a focus on driving revenue, not just vanity metrics. Uh, Or you can connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, It's Jason Bradwell, bright yellow profile shot. You can't miss me. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for tuning in again and I will see you next week.